Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bornilsen. I'm a social anthropologist based in Oslo and one of the leaders of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. In this episode, we discuss Arve Hansen's new book, Consumption and Vietnam's New Middle Classes, Societal Transformations and Everyday Life. In this brand new book, Arve Hansen studies the dramatic changes in consumption patterns in Vietnam over the past decades, focusing on both the relationship between consumption and Vietnam's socialist market economy, as well as digging into specific consumption domains like mobility, food, and energy. To discuss the book, we are joined by Manisha Anantaraman, Associate Professor of Justice, Community and Leadership at St. Mary's College of California in the Bay Area, and by the author, Arve Hansen himself. He is a Senior Researcher and Human Geographer at the Center for Development and the Environment in Oslo. And not least, he is also one of the leaders of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies, and a regular host of the Nordic Asia podcast series. Welcome to the both of you. Thank you very much, Kenneth. So Arve, I hope you enjoy this shift from interviewer to interviewee. Nice to sit on the other side of the table, I suppose. To get us started, Arve, where did the idea for this book come from? <laughs> yeah, thank you, Kenneth. It is indeed good to be on this side of the table. Although I must say I'm also a bit more nervous than I usually am, especially given that we're discussing my book today. So this book is based on a decade of work, really. So the idea has been there a while. The book draws on my PhD and postdoc projects and more. And I, I started out in my PhD work on mobility and studying the development of Vietnam's motorbike society and the emergence of big cars in the narrow streets of Hanoi, and later moved over to food uh, with particular interest in the dramatic increase in meat consumption seen in the country over the past decades. But all along, my overall interest has been in consumption and sustainability, broadly speaking. And I quite early on decided that I would like to, at some point, write a book about the consumption patterns of Vietnam's new and rapidly expanding middle classes. Then I also used a very long time writing it, <laughs> since a certain certain pandemic happened and uh, two small kids at home, and you know the story, but here it is, finally. Congratulations on the book, Arv. It's quite an achievement, as you indicate now. Manisha, you're an expert on consumption and the middle classes as well, but you have mostly focused on India in your own research. With that background, how did you read consumption and Vietnam's new middle classes? Do you see any clear parallels to your own work? Thank you. So first of all, I found consumption and Vietnam's new middle classes a fascinating read. And not knowing too much about Vietnam's economic and social histories before reading this book and never having visited Vietnam myself, Arve, your ethnographic writing really made me feel like I was there, like I was riding pillion on your motorbike as we were weaving through the traffic and eating pho in the morning. So I would recommend this book for the really kind of beautiful pictures of life it paints in urban Vietnam. And Kenneth, as you mentioned, I've done research on consumption and middle classes. And as all scholars who try to study the middle class or the middle classes will sympathize with, it is quite hard to get a handle on what these terms mean. Middle class is a term that is thrown about very easily. 
It can also be defined in so many different ways based on income, wealth, consumption patterns, education. Moreover, it also often functions as a political claim. Policymakers and state agents often invoke the middle class as a unified, homogeneous group to justify pursuing certain policies that, while they may be presented as a universal good, might only benefit relatively small proportions of the population. For example, pro-car policies in cities where car users are actually a minority of the urban population. Similarly, sometimes individuals or community organizations can claim middle-class affiliation to present their quite specific class-based concerns as issues of universal import, or as the sociologists Amita Bhaviskar and Rakare say, to simultaneously represent both the elite and the everyman, to speak for everyone because you are in the middle. But as Arve has shown in his work, there can be a lot of variation within the middle classes, for example, between securely propertied groups with ties to the West versus those who are in precarious employment or who have recently migrated to the city. And so I really appreciated Arve's ethnographic descriptions of varied middle class lives and practices in Vietnam. I also think this book challenges some of the big assumptions about middle class consumption in Asia. Scholarship from the West, and particularly here I'm thinking about environmental scholarship, sustainability scholarship, not so much anthropological scholarship or geographical scholarship, but environmental scholarship tends to present the Asian middle classes as voracious consumers with an insatiable appetite for eating up the planet. I think this is a very Western anxiety and has some racist overtones, especially when connected to the problematic discourses on overpopulation. Arway's work and my work too shows that rising consumption in Asia has as much, if not more, to do with the broader structural shifts in the global economy, which consistently privilege the interests of capital, than it has to do with the consuming impulses of individual people. At the same time, we cannot discount the agencies of individuals and communities in navigating the social structures they occupy. So I think this book does an admirable job in how it connects a study of the micro of everyday life practices and the macro of the political economy. I think this is a necessary next step in the study of sustainable consumption, not just in Asia, but in all contexts. Avi, I actually wanted to ask you something along the same lines. If we look at the subtitle of your book, Societal Transformations and Everyday Life, in a way, this sort of points to exactly the things that Manisha is hinting at now. Why this combination in your subtitle of Societal Transformations and Everyday Life? Yes, I think, as Manisha was saying, this is an important next step in the field that we're in. For me personally, I came from a background in development studies. I've been deeply fascinated by the development processes in Vietnam since I was a master student at SOAS in London quite a while ago now. This is a country that since the so-called Doi Moi market reforms in the 1980s has become known as a major development success story particularly fascinating to me, at least, is the so-called market economy with social orientation or socialist market economy. So when I was given the opportunity 11 years ago now to do a PhD on how consumption patterns change through development processes, the political economy of development in Vietnam was the natural starting point. But in many ways, this approach was challenged and in quite profound way, I would say, when engaging more deeply with consumption. Although the interest was there before, it was through my PhD work and especially through one of my supervisors and then a late Hal Wilhite that I started really digging into the field of consumption studies. And I was deeply impressed by the field's attention to everyday life and the insistence on starting the analysis there with people and how they live and make sense of the lives and the goods they consume. 
So I really learned a lot during this period. And I was also inspired by geographers like Jonathan Rigg writing about everyday geographies. But in consumption studies, I was particularly fascinated by social practice theory, which has become dominant in the field now. And this has stuck with me since. And I remain convinced that a practice approach is uniquely useful for explaining everyday consumption. That said, I was also surprised by the extent to which most of contemporary consumption studies seemingly ignored wider economic systems. It's sometimes in there, but it's hardly dealt with analytically at all. And this goes for the so-called practice turn as well. And this is partly caused by a flat ontology. There is little room for structures of any kind. I will not go into that here. <laughs> the short version is that I'm not convinced. <laughs> and I, like many others, and including Manisha, feel this is a major shortcoming of dominant approaches to consumption today. So to me, studying consumption involves studying capitalism. And studying consumption in a country and society in the midst of dramatic capitalist transformations, the importance of factoring in broader economic structures is just more obvious. The political economists are very bad at studying everyday life. So for a decade or so, I've been trying to combine two worlds that don't necessarily want to be combined by studying both everyday life and macro processes of development together, and by trying to understand how large-scale processes of capitalist development shape consumption patterns. I don't think everyone would agree with this approach, and I don't pretend to have solved this challenge but I do think I'm getting better at it, at least. And luckily, there are others, and Manisha is my favorite here, doing important work to develop new and more holistic approaches for studying consumption and how it changes. Yeah, Manisha, I actually wanted to pose almost the, the same question to you. It's clear from the conversation and also from the work that you're doing that you both share this interest in connecting consumption patterns to these broader political economic contexts, although you may do it in slightly different ways, perhaps. Manisha, in your view, why is this attention to political economy so important? I'll first say one thing I really appreciate about Arve's work, and I think what Arve is trying to do and what I'm trying to do is we're undisciplined scholars. I think we're not so interested in kind of doing what is sanctioned or done in terms of studying consumption or studying development, but trying to bridge borders and bring things together. And that involves theoretical pluralism. It involves not being stuck in a particular canon or a particular literature. It involves talking between boundaries. And I think that type of work is really important. It's really fruitful. I do really hope that people working in Europe and with Europe will read this book. Because I think they will learn a lot about how to study consumption in Europe from looking at how Arve has studied the changes of consumption in Vietnam. So I know this is the Nordic Asia podcast, but in case you have some European scholars or uh, folks studying uh, Western contexts, I think there is something for them here as well. But to answer your question, Kenneth, to be very blunt, and I've explained this in some of my writing, I think consumption scholarship that makes no mention of political economy or, you know, in other words, the broader structural factors and power dynamics of capitalism that drive rising consumption of resources, tells a very partial and maybe even a dangerous story. Such a story can end up normalizing inequality, scapegoating individual consumers, while also absolving key corporate and state actors of their responsibility for the ecological crisis. So for me, bringing in political economy is one important, essential way to talk about power and the social relations of capitalism vis-a-vis -vis consumption. 
But unfortunately, these questions of power, legitimacy, authority, and consequently justice have largely remained unexamined in a lot of consumption research. I think for me also, political economy is a way to bring the state back into studies of consumption. In India and in Vietnam, the emergence of the consuming classes has not happened despite the state, but actually with full support from the state, which in some cases is beholden to powerful corporate lobbies. Shopping malls are taking over the urban landscape because real estate development makes money, right? And it supports the global flows of capital. High-rise, grass-fronted apartments that Arve describes in his work that are not very suited to the local weather conditions. These are growing in popularity because architects and planners in Asia are emulating the so-called world-class aesthetic, which has now become internalized as desirable in these professional planning communities. These are important factors, and I think without considering them, I don't think we can get a complete picture of the unsustainable megatrends driving climate and environmental damage across the world. Also, as Arve said, I don't think it has to be an either-or. As Arve shows in his book, and as I try to do in my work, studying everyday life is really important in terms of identifying those ruptures or moments of possibility to interrupt and transform resource-intensive consumption. We need to pay attention to the variegated nature of capitalist development and avoid seeing capitalism or neoliberalism as some monolithic force or juggernaut. Theoretical pluralism and ethnographic methods can help get us there, but I also think we need to study power and problematize inequality more centrally in consumption research. Can I just add that I fully agree? And this is, to me, one of the most exciting parts about studying consumption. And I think, Manisha, one of your propositions in a previous publication to develop a new and more critical sustainable consumption agenda is something that I find very inspiring and that I hope that we will see more of in a field that feels ready for some new pathways, I believe. And I think they can take many different directions. But this critical edge and taking into account political economy in various ways, I believe, like you say, has to be a part of this. So, Manisha, if I may return to you. Arva's book is focused on the new middle classes. I work on India myself, and I know that when it comes to consumption, as you mentioned earlier on, there's been a lot of focus on what we often refer to as India's new middle classes, a class that is often seen quite stereotypically as embodying new forms of conspicuous consumption and so on and so forth. But I know that you've also criticized this exaggerated focus on the middle classes in research on sustainable consumption. What are the pitfalls of such middle-class-centric research, in your opinion? Let me answer this question with a small example. So in the city of Bangalore, where I've done a lot of my ethnographic work and I used to live, there's a huge problem with cars. There are simply too many of them. They contribute to urban congestion and to air pollution, and it makes it really difficult to be a pedestrian. Bangalore's roads are, there's something else. Now, the state has tried to respond to this problem by building more flyovers and more overpasses and ring roads and signal-free corridors. You name it, it's tried to do every traffic engineering solution, but it simply cannot keep up with the sheer number of personal automobiles that are added to the roads in Bangalore every year. Bangalore has a very active environmentalist contingent among its new middle classes, and some of these people have been trying to devise ways to encourage more public transport and more bicycling amongst the middle classes. One idea proposed by a civil society group was to create a new air-conditioned bus fleet that would connect middle-class and wealthy neighborhoods with a central business district and tech park. So basically like a bus fleet that would exclusively serve certain middle-class neighborhoods, connect them to the places where people work, 
the buses would just go back and forth and it would be an air-conditioned bus fleet. It would have an advertising campaign. The idea being that if you make buses comfortable and swanky, middle-class people who care about social distinction or even just very simply, they don't want to get too sweaty before going into business meetings, they're more likely to take the bus if the bus is comfortable, air-conditioned. These environmentalist technocrats, because they are seen as modern, rational, high-tech, they have the year of the state, they have the year of urban planners, and the state agreed to develop such a bus fleet. But to fund this initiative, subsidized bus routes that served working-class areas of the city, informal settlements of the city, and connected those areas to each other were discontinued or the frequency of buses was reduced. And so what happened was the needs of the poor and working classes were compromised in favor of more air-conditioned bus fleets to tempt the new middle classes out of their cars. What resulted actually was kind of ironic because those buses that were very heavily used by working class people became even more crowded. The services that they depended on deteriorated. So what that meant was that the minute a working class person could save up enough money to buy a motorbike, they would go and buy a motorbike because they could no longer rely on the public transport they were using previously. So ultimately, this actually just resulted in more automobiles joining the roads and in more congestion. So I think this example shows that focusing exclusively on the middle classes without thinking about the broader urban fabric or the needs of other social groups can have all sorts of unanticipated outcomes. And especially outcomes that make life harder for marginalized communities. In some of my other work on waste in India, I found that sustainable waste management schemes planned by middle-class Indians can actually further these very oppressive cultures of servitude while also displacing informal sector livelihoods. And also to go back a little bit to my previous point on political economy, it also matters how we study middle-class consumption. I have no problem with middle-class centric studies if they take a critical perspective and examine broader structural forces alongside everyday practices, culture, and values, like our ways work, for instance. But when we over-focus on middle-class communities and practices for more systemic analysis, I think we're in danger of missing the bigger picture. Arve, I have to ask you, what's your take on this? Your book is about the middle class. Are there still things to learn from studying Asian middle classes? <laughs> well, first of all, let me say that I fully agree with Manisha's points, and I believe these are all very important points. And Manisha, your work is also an important source of inspiration for me. It's just a real pity that I discovered the PhD thesis on middle-class bicycling in Bangalore after my PhD. We were doing it about the same time, because that would have been extremely useful for my own work on mobility. But yes, I think we all agree that we need to understand the middle classes, although the way we approach it matters, of course. The Asian middle classes, whatever that means, <laughs> will in profound ways shape the global political economy and will be part of determining the future of global sustainability. But we need to get much more precise when discussing the middle classes. I think the big development institutions are the worst. They have somewhat ironically developed a completely classless way to discuss class. But academics are often quite poor themselves, as Manisha touched on earlier, especially in this environmental or sustainability fields. They tend to lump together people at highly different levels of income and power in this one group, which isn't really a group at all. So I think at least we need to talk about the middle classes in plural. The difference between the upper and lower segments are often enormous. I think in many ways, India and Vietnam are actually quite different cases. 
India known as a case of a country largely missing a proper middle class. More precisely, a very large proportion of India's sizable middle classes belong to the lower end of the category. Now, this is the case in Vietnam as well, but it seems the middle and upper segment are larger, relatively speaking, than in India. But what all the middle classes have in common, no matter their position in this hierarchy, is that they are consumers. Most of them are just not necessarily the kind of consumers that many imagine. They're not wealthy, they're not big spenders, they often struggle to make ends meet. But they are consumers who live in consumer societies, and they do increasingly spend parts of their income on a wide range of consumer durables, such as motorbikes, air conditioners, and a range of other stuff, and on eating out, going on holidays, and so on. That doesn't make them necessarily this conspicuous consumer. This takes shape through just people living their everyday lives in particular societies. And how exactly this looks and what kinds of goods and services are involved depend on class positions. Also then within this middle class or middle classes category. And these changes also have global ramifications, as I already touched on. And I believe these changes are shaped by, and they also shape, large-scale and small-scale transformations. And that's, of course, what this book is all about. Manisha, is there anything you'd like to add to this? Well, I think one thing I'll briefly say, just in response to what Arve said, was I think one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was how you focused on both continuity and change and the ways in which those are connected to each other. For example, when writing about meat consumption, you know, demonstrating that it wasn't that there was a dramatic change in how people consumed meat overnight, but rather it was a very gradual process of shifting to more eating out or existing traditional food becoming more meat intensive over time. And these small changes in the aggregate can have a transformative impact and shift what is considered as normal or as expected in a particular context. So I think the ethnographic nuance of this work is really important and adds to what we know about the very diverse and variegated Asian middle classes. The one other thing that I wanted to bring up from the book we haven't talked about yet is this idea of consumer socialism, which I found a really fascinating concept. And especially you have a sentence in the book, Arve, where you say the freedom to consume supersedes other freedoms in Vietnam now. The freedom to consume kind of stands in place of access to other sorts of political freedoms that people may not have access to. And I think this is beginning to happen in other parts of the world, including places like India that have to date been considered democracies, but are showing more authoritarian impulses. And we're seeing the rise of more authoritarian policies and clampdowns on political expression in places like India. But the freedom to consume remains. And it's something that is presented as a sign of progress, a sign of modernity, a sign of development. And it's also really interesting to me, who are the constituencies for consumer socialism? You also talk about how in the book, there has been a rationalization of consumption as something that people can do if they come to it the right way, that they have worked hard and they now deserve to consume. And this also kind of reminds me a little bit of this like myth of meritocracy, the idea also of the American dream, you know, you work hard, your reward is to consume as much as you want. 
And I think we're in a really interesting political moment in relation to consumption. And I feel like your book actually seeds maybe some conversations that we should all be having, which is in this time when, when there's inflation and one of the main ways in which people experience whether a political system is functional or not is based on gas prices or how much things cost. Right now, I'm living in Tunisia, where there's no milk to be found on the shelves, no yogurt, and things are really expensive, and people are unhappy. They see this as a failure of the state, as a dysfunction. In many cases, it is, yes, but it's also tied to something else, right? It's tied to dynamics beyond this individual nation. So to think about how the identity of the consumer, the consuming subject, is tied to these bigger political transformations... I think your book actually has some really interesting ideas there, which I think we need to explore more in studies of consumption, because when we think about if sustainability means curtailing consumption, what does that look like as a political project? How does that impact nation building and the stability of states? And how does that pit different social groups against each other? So I think that the transformation you have documented from this market socialism where consumption and, you know, conspicuous consumption was looked down upon to now a situation where it is seen as normal, it's seen as desirable and people do it, might actually tell us something about some of the challenges that are coming up as we try to go the other way. Thank you very much, Manisha. And thanks for also bringing up this idea of consumer socialism, which is a concept that I have, I don't know, I've been a bit careful with it. Until I guess now, seeing that people react positively to it, but it's been an attempt to capture this combination of socialism and a capitalist consumer society. Because I think what many outside observers misunderstand Vietnam, both in terms of seeing it as a socialist country and in seeing it as a capitalist country, because the country is both at the same time, in very complex ways. And this is something that I often try to remind students as well that just because Vietnam has gone through this and is going through this dramatic capitalist transformation, this socialism, at least as an idea, is extremely important. And when the country is run by a communist party, which is organized among highly Leninist structures, and the communist party takes socialism very seriously. And this is something that runs through the entire society in terms of class hierarchies or in terms of power structures, in terms of market access, in terms of incomes of all kinds. And I think this is often forgotten that although, and as I keep saying, <laughs> this is not socialism in the way that many would expect, but the idea of socialism really matters in shaping Vietnam's market economy. And this also then, of course, shapes consumption. So this is what I'm trying to play with in this term of consumer socialism, that it's a combination of capitalist market economy of the consumer society and of the strong importance of socialism still. It's a combination that leads to something different from both the capitalist consumer society and from socialism as we know it. And this is, to me, one of the most fascinating parts of studying consumption in Vietnam. But thank you also for mentioning the importance of taking seriously the challenge a sustainability project that aims to reduce consumption and the enormous complexity that goes into a quite simple proposition, you could say. I also believe that this is something that, from a sustainability perspective and within the field of consumption research, is extremely important that we take more seriously, this complexity of it. 
and for all environmentalists out there as well that expect people to just change overnight because we need to because of climate change and environmental disasters we know from decades of work on consumption that it's just not the way we work <laughs> a lot of unanswered questions out there Arve Hansen and Manisha Anantaraman, thank you so much for joining us today in this discussion on consumption and Vietnam's new middle classes, societal transformation and everyday life. Written by Arve Hansen, a highly recommended read indeed. My name is Kenneth Bonilsen and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. Listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.